before we get into our message today, uh, a joy to be with you all. If you're new to our congregation, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And at the end of our service, I'll be outside or in the lobby area. I would love to meet you if we've never uh, met before. Uh, And so uh, please stop by and say hello. Before we get into our text today, uh, just a, a little bit of housekeeping news here. A few uh, months ago, a couple of months ago or so, we received nominations from our congregation about potential uh, new elders to join our elder board. And uh, a few names came in, and we went through a process through our elder search committee of interviewing a few candidates. And there are two candidates that we are actually uh, have identified to be as part of the board, um, Wale Bakari and uh, Arnie Farith. And part of our, uh, the way we do things at New Life is the congregation nominates a pot- uh, potential elders. Uh, they are then uh, interviewed and we have conversation and then we present them before you to the congregation uh, to include you into, into this part of the process. And so essentially it's this, if there is anything that concerns you about these two men that you want us to know uh, we want to invite you to let us know. And so you can email us at elders at newlife.nyc. We recognize this is a significant role to play within our church, to be an elder at New Life Fellowship Church. And so if there's something that you thought, you know, concerning or you just think is important for us to hear, uh, please send an email uh, to uh, that email address. Uh, these are two wonderful men that I've known for a number of years, and uh, I'm excited for what God might have uh, for them uh, in our community, but this is part of the process as well. And over the years, we've had so many wonderful elders at New Life. It's one of the gifts of being part of this community for many, many years. Uh, God has some wonderful people in this community. And so uh, that's it. with that, let's look at our text today. We've been focusing on this series called A Deeply Formed Life, and we've been looking at the five values that make up our congregation. So far, we've talked about contemplative rhythms. We've talked about racial reconciliation. Last week, we talked about interior examination or emotional health. Today, we're talking about sexual wholeness, sexual wholeness, and it's an important topic for us uh, that we need to wrestle with uh, faithfully, and I want to tell you from the very beginning that there's going to be a lot that I am going to be presenting to you. I really think you're going to need to listen to it at some point later on in this week, and it is uh, my thought that I think I need to develop something maybe into a series or something along these lines because it is that important for our own discipleship and formation in Jesus Christ. We're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 18, uh, verses 19 through verse Verse uh, 25, hear the word of the Lord. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. I hope he has some good anesthesia for that there. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then verse 25, this is really what I want to focus on. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is really what God invites all of us to as, as, as humanity, to live with this sense of nakedness and with out shame. Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to lead us as we move into this text today. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all the ways you've already met us in our gathering today. And now I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive every gift you have for us this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Let me begin this message on sexual wholeness by saying that all of us need to broaden our understanding on what it means to be sexual beings. 
When we think of sexuality, we often have a narrow set of images, a narrow set of words that come to mind, but I want to help you expand your understanding of this important topic. And in order to do that, I want to show a video that on the surface might not seem to do with anything related to sexuality, but it actually has everything to do with sexuality because sexuality is, is about our deep desire and longing for connection. At its core, sexuality is about our deep desire and longing for connection. And so to that end, I want to show you a beautiful video that gives you a big perspective picture on what sexuality is and how I'm defining it today, and then we'll narrow it down to some of the particular things about it. So hit the lights, check out this quick video. Ah, oh, how beautiful, isn't that how beautiful? Some of you might be wondering what this has to do with sexuality. And one of the challenges in our society and in our culture is we have so reduced sexuality to an act of sex, which makes it very difficult to explore how vast this topic is. I have found the definitions of Deborah Hirsch, a wonderful author who's been to New Life in the past, on spirituality and sexuality, and I think this is the starting point to talk about what it means to connect to God and to connect with one another. Spirituality, she says, can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. Beyond that, it is the inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other that is God. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. What is spirituality? It is this deep desire to know God and to be known by God. Sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. If this is our starting point for sexuality, the video we just saw makes all the sense in the world because sexuality is the energy that pulls us towards other people. And this is where the conversation on sexuality must begin. And it is from here that we can narrow it down to the specifics of it. Now, today, we're not going to be able to talk about all of the nuances of sexuality. I hope to do that in the near future. But hopefully, today's message will give us a big picture perspective on what it means to follow Jesus and to take our sexuality seriously. Now, any talk on sexuality, especially in the church, is similar to addressing matters of racism and, and politics. We, we just don't want to talk about it, and for many different reasons. Think about how we were formed in our own households. Think about your own experience. What kind of training, what kind of coaching, what kind of formation did you receive in the area of sexuality? Was sex and sexuality a topic of discussion in your home? Was it avoided like the plague? Was it outsourced to schools? to educate you? And these are good questions, not just for our own reflection as it relates to our own households, but for the church as well. Because the church has often reflected a lack of formation in this area as well. Either the church has been silent on the matter, either the church has been increasingly awkward on this matter, or the church has been so judgmental on this matter that we have not had an opportunity to have mature, Jesus-oriented conversations around our bodies, around what it means to connect with others around sexuality. What complicates all of this is that many of us live with a great deal of shame as it relates to our bodies and as it relates to connecting to others. Some of that shame has emerged because of our own sins. Some of that shame has emerged because people have sinned against us. And as a result, we have a hard time navigating through this space. And so what we have is a lack of spiritual formation, a lack of discipleship, a lack of good teaching. And there are two images that come to mind that kind of distill the lack of training, formation, discipleship that we've received in this area. An author by the name of Christopher West has helped to describe these two diets. He calls it two diets in particular that 
impacts our lives and impacts the surrounding world. The first diet is known as the starvation diet. The starvation diet. And this is a diet that often finds its way in the church. It's a diet that's marked by repression, suppression. That there's no space, no emotional capacity to talk about our bodies, to talk about our longings, to talk about our passions, to talk about our deep desire for connection with others. And because there's so much shame wrapped around our bodies and so much shame wrapped around the conversation of sexuality, what actually happens is people suppress it, they repress it, they starve. But inevitably what begins to happen is this. If you suppress and repress, at some point in your life, you're going to act out. Which is why there's so many secrets in the church. There's so many things that come to light in the church because we have not received good theology enough and have not normalized that to, have, to talk about sexuality is normal and should be normal. And should be the same way we talk about prayer, we should be able to talk about sexuality. But because we've lacked all of this, we suppress, we repress, and we act out. It's the starvation diet. On the other side of the spectrum, we have what's known as the fast food diet. The fast food diet. If the starvation diet is marked by repression, the fast food diet is marked by reduction. And by reduction, what I'm saying is that we say all of our longings are to be met. Whatever we want, whatever we desire, all of our passions should be fulfilled in any way we desire them to be fulfilled. And so the culture says, does it feel right? We say yes. We say, go for it. Does it fulfill you? Yes. Go for it. And so there's no discernment with this diet. We are driven by our passions. We are driven by our longings. We are not led by them. There's no discernment around them. And so whether it's the starvation diet or whether it's the fast food diet, both of these offer a very immature way of thinking about sexuality and thinking about our bodies. What we are invited into, brothers and sisters, is to reject the starvation, to reject the fast food, and to live a life that's marked by sexual wholeness. Sexual wholeness. I want to offer a definition that I've created to help us at least begin to explore what I mean when I say sexual wholeness. Sexual wholeness is the prayerful integration of our spirituality and sexuality resulting in deep, satisfying relationships with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and leads to healthy bonding. It's the prayerful. Hear those words. Every word was very intentional when I wrote this. It's the prayerful integration of our spirituality and our sexuality that results in deep, satisfying relationships with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and leads to healthy bonding. Now, we will never achieve sexual wholeness to perfection in this lifetime. But by the grace of God, all of us can take the next step in our discipleship and in our spiritual growth. And to that end, I want to look at the book of Genesis chapter 2 to uh, get some theology around how we think about our bodies and our sexuality and our spirituality. We can go to the book of Genesis, especially the first few chapters, to address so many issues in our society, and it's the same when we're talking about sexual wholeness. In Genesis, it states that God created humanity in his image, that God created Adam and Eve in his image. And to be made in the image of God means at least one thing, that we were made for relationship, that we were made for intimacy, that we were made for bonds of connection. Why? Because we confess that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians confess God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God, in God's very essence, God is one God, but in God's essence, God is a communion and a community of love. This is what we confess, that the Holy Trinity exists in the unending circle of divine love. And so to be made in the image of God, brothers and sisters, means that we were created to exist within a circle of divine love with God and with one another. And so when the writer of Genesis describes this couple, it's interesting to see the words that's chosen. There are two words that give us a picture of God's intention to live within this circle of love. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. These words describe 
their relationship to God and their relationship to one another. They live vulnerable lives and they carry no shame. No sense of inadequacy, no need to cover up, no need to hide. They're naked and unashamed. Now, we have to know theologically that these words are not just for married people. These are the words that God wants to describe all of humanity, to live a life that's naked and unashamed. And the word naked is not really talking about clothing. It's talking about connection. We were made for a particular life of vulnerability and connectedness. We were made to connect deeply with one another, and we all long for it. And so naked and unashamed applies to our friendships. Naked and unashamed applies to our parenting, our relationships with our children. Naked and unashamed applies to our marriages. It applies to all of the relationships. This is what God intended for us. But then something happens in the story, as you know. They rebel. They do their own thing. They want to be God on their own terms. And they sin. They, uh, they, they eat from the tree they should not have eaten from. And when they do, there's an immediate change. Sin and shame enter the world. And now their lives are marked by hiding, estrangement, shame, sin. Now, when we look at this story, it's a story that all of us know whether Christian or unchristian, it's a, a non-Christian, it's a story that many people know. But what I want to do for our time here is explore three theological truths out of that story of the first few chapters in Genesis. And then out of that, I want to draw out some implications that we are to consider for the sake of sexual wholeness. Are you with me? The first thing is true that I want to Explore, number one, is that sexuality is part of God's good creation. This is so important. It seems so simple to say this. But the way we talk about sexuality, especially in the church, makes it feel like sexuality came after sin. That desire, longing, human connection, that, that, this, that is part of the sinful world. How do I know this? Because to talk about this topic is often done in hushed terms. But if it's something's good, you don't need to hush around it and talk in, and, and talk in uh, whispers around it. And you need to hear that it's part of God's good creation. Now, Satan has twisted it. Satan has perverted it. But this is part of God's good creation. And it is something that we must maintain and hold on to. God is the uh, uh, creator of sexuality and sexual intimacy. That's the first thing that we have to say. The second truth that we have to note is that there is a distinction in the book of Genesis between genital sexuality and social sexuality. The opening stories in Genesis shows two kinds of sexuality. And we must learn to distinguish the two of them. The, the first part of it is this social sexuality. This desire that we were, they were made for human connection. Human beings were made to connect with other people. That there's a longing, as we saw in that definition, to know and to be known by others. And whether this happens in the workplace, whether this happens in the church, whether this happens in the playground, we all have a social sexuality. It reminds me when my son Nathan was five years old, I took him to the playground. He had a great time with a friend, a new friend. And the next day he said, can we go to the playground? Again, the same playground. I said, sure, we'll, we'll go again. And he said, Daddy, I need to wear the same shirt that I wore yesterday. And I thought, why do you need to wear the same shirt? And, he, and he, he, this was just how he thought about it. Because if I see my friend again, if I don't have the same shirt, he won't remember me. And yes, it's a cute story. This is like, oh, but you know what this is? It's a desire for, it's social sexuality. It's a desire to know and be known, a desire to connect with others. And whether we're talking about the playground or whether we're talking about church or wherever we're talking, we all have this social sexuality. But there's also another kind of sexuality we see in the scriptures where it's genital sexuality. And, and, and what God does in Genesis 2 is he establishes a means of covenant love whereby, uh, he says, a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And, and what this, this new family unit now is marked by is this covenantal sign of genital union. That in this particular passage of scripture, we see belonging 
taking on a particular form. And through the act of sexual union with another, we express with our bodies the full covenant love and union. We give expression to it. And it is in this powerful and creative act where we offer ourselves to another and self giving love. And so, listen, genital sexuality is not simply about our bodies colliding with each other. It's an act of self-giving, mutually indwelling love that points to something beyond ourselves. And this is why this kind of love and this kind of act and this kind of communication requires a powerful and nurturing safeguard around it called marriage. It's such a powerful force, such a fire, that it requires a context that's strong enough to protect it, and that is marriage. And we'll get back to that in a moment. The third truth in Genesis 2 is that, uh, that we see is that shame is a force that we must regularly contend with. Shame is a force that we must regularly uh, contend with. Now, uh, look again, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Here we have humanity living in its greatest freedom and joy. Their love for one another is free from body shaming, free from comparison, free from objectification. There's a fundamental unity between them and their God, the surrounding creation, and their bodies. But when sin enters the world, they're marked by shame. There's a wonderful book called The Soul of Shame by a doctor named Kurt Thompson. And he argues that it is easier to talk about what shame does to us than defining it. And he says that shame is the response in our brain and body that leads me to turn away from you while internalizing particular messages. Messages like, I am bad. It's not that I did a bad thing. It's just my fundamental identity is bad. I am bad. I am worthless. I am no good. And that's, if you want to describe shame, it is turning away from someone and internalizing a message, I am not worth it. I am bad. And this is something all of us experience to varying degrees at different points in a given week, different points in a given month. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with Rosie. We were driving, and I had mentioned something that I said, and she uh, responded with a question. Uh, it was a very incisive question, and, and the question revealed something in me that maybe I didn't say what I should have said to another person the way I said it. And in that moment, I felt immediate embarrassment and immediate shame as I'm driving. And everything inside of me wanted to turn away from her. As I'm driving, I wanted to look out the window and drive. <laughs> Not a good idea. And so everything, I'm thinking about this message, I'm thinking about shame, that shame is this fundamental turning away from God and another person and this internalizing of a message that says, I am bad, I am not worth it. And everything inside me was turning around and I wanted to turn around and I turned around to her and just shared my own sense of shame and embarrassment and moved closer to her in that moment. And was everything resolved? Not everything was resolved, but it was better than me just turning away the entire time. All of us deal with shame to varying degrees, to varying levels, and God is calling us and inviting us into a kind of freedom. And so if those are the three truths that we find theologically in Genesis, the question then becomes, what does it mean for us to be a community that's committed to sexual wholeness? What does it look like for us individually? What does it look like for those of you who are single, for those of you who are married, for those of you in your 20s, for those of you in your 60s and 70s? What does it mean for us as a community to be committed to sexual wholeness? And it is at this point where I want to draw out some implications. I had 10 that I was going to give. I'll give you seven. Seven implications of this truth in Genesis. What does it mean for us? How do we live our lives committed to this? Seven statements I want to offer. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to listen to this later in the week again. 
And by God's grace, I'll hopefully offer maybe something longer in the series in the months to come. First of all, it's this. To be a community committed to sexual wholeness means that there's a recognition that all of us are sexually broken. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of you watching online, every single one of you listening to this podcast later on, we are all sexually broken. One of the reasons I love the Bible is the Bible does not shy away from telling stories of sexual brokenness. I am so deeply grateful that the Bible is not a collection of sanitized stories of holy people. The Bible is rather a collection of stories of ordinary, broken people who are loved by God and are made holy by a righteousness outside of themselves. That's why I read the Bible. And I love reading the Bible. Because when I go through the pages and read about all the sins and the sexual brokenness, I go, this is not just me. This is not just us. This is the story of humanity as a whole from the very beginning. All of us are sexually broken, but we manifest our sexual brokenness in different ways. And this is the starting point, brothers and sisters, for any meaningful conversation on sexuality. It's very easy to focus on the sins of other people, especially the sins we don't like. But any meaningful conversation and becoming a community that's marked by sexual wholeness recognizes that all of us are sexually broken. Could you imagine if every church began with this? How we would be able to connect and lead others to Jesus Christ. To connect with others on very difficult matters. To navigate some of the larger cultural matters as it relates to sexuality and gender and all the rest by beginning by saying all of us are sexually broken. That's the starting point. Secondly, it's important for us to know that sexual wholeness is not moral perfection. Sexual wholeness is not moral perfection. We are incapable of moral perfection. Why do we pray a prayer of confession every single week as a community? Because it's a reminder that at some point in a given day, at some point in a given week, we will mess up. In some way, and so sexual wholeness, don't hear this as, I don't mess up. Don't hear this as, I am spotless, I am sinless, not at all. We all make bad decisions. We all struggle with some kind of addiction. We all need varying levels of support. And so sexual wholeness is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. Not living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. Sexual wholeness says, I need help for my struggles. Sexual wholeness says, I need to reject the messages I've received about sexuality. Sexual wholeness says, I want to live a life that's marked by holiness, but not a holiness that means perfection, a holiness that means communion with God and communion with others. Sexual wholeness is not about moral perfection. That's number two. Number three. Sexual wholeness requires the act of discerning who I give my body to. Discerning who I give my body to. We live in a culture, whether in movies or in real life, that does not see the act of sexual union I'm talking about now sexual union, intercourse, all the, the, it's not seen as sacred. It's so flippantly talked about. And so our culture says, if it feels good, why shouldn't, why shouldn't you pursue it? And so there's no discernment. It's just, I'm going to be driven by my desires and driven by my passions. But sexual intimacy is a fire. It's such a powerful force that bonds 
people together, which is why, again, it needs a strong enough context to sustain it, and that context is marriage. I know how countercultural that sounds, but marriage is, a, is the bond that's strong enough to contain the fire of sexual intimacy. Because sexual intimacy is an act that gives expression to our vows of love that we promised when we got married. Sexual intimacy in that context is saying with our bodies what we promised we would do with our words. And so every time a couple has sex together, they are are renewing their vows. I I promise to love you faithfully and freely through good times and bad times. And I am now giving expression to it with my body. And so sexual intimacy then becomes the expression of covenant and it is cheapened when it is done outside of that covenant of love expressed in marriage. And so it requires discernment of who I give my body to. Your body is sacred. That union with another person points to the union we have with God. And it requires discernment. And not to be driven by a culture around us that says, do whatever you want. Number four. Sexual wholeness is about relating to others in ways not given to objectification. We were created, brothers and sisters, to enjoy communion with God and communion with one another. Created to have relationships marked by dignity and respect. But we live in a society where using is the norm. We have been shaped in a society, especially men, to believe that our sexual desires must be met however we decide. And so we've been more discipled by our culture than anything else. To live beyond this, to to live in a way that's given to objectification is essentially what Jesus was saying when he talked about lusting in our hearts. The real problem, Richard Rohr said it this way, the, the real problem with the sin of lust is this. It's creating relationships in your head. And this is a prevalent and dangerous reality in our day. When we see the impact of pornography in our culture, we are formed to create imaginary relationships in our head that impact our ability for genuine connection with other people. And so we often think that that the problem with pornography is that you're seeing naked bodies. Of course that's problematic. But the problem is that we are reducing others as a tool, as an object, and now we are seeing them as less than human. It's dehumanizing. And that is the sin because we're made in the image of God. And to dehumanize someone, to make someone less than human is to sin against God and to sin against another person. And so in this respect, we are invited, sexual wholeness is about relating to others in ways that are not given to objectification, not given to using, but to union and communion. Number five, sexual wholeness is oriented around seeing God as the source and the end of my longings. God's given me desires and my desires point to God. God is the beginning and the end of my passions. God is the beginning and the end of my longings. God is the beginning and the end of everything inside it. God gives it to me, and essentially God says, I want you to to be in these relationships that point to me, which is why lovemaking and marriage and, and the way that we connect to one another, singles, is to point to our relationship to God. We are to be icons, a window that points us into another dimension. And anytime we believe that something uh, material, something relational is going to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul is a recipe for so much uh, discouragement, disorientation, disillusionment. 
What the church often does is, is they say, why don't you just get married? And if you get married, all your longings will, will come to an end. If you're married, say, that ain't right. That ain't right. <laughs> you know that ain't right. Put in the chat section, that ain't right. It's not right. Because no human being can ever satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Our, Rosie and I, our marriage is a beautiful marriage. We have deep bonds of connection to one another. And yet I will never satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. And she will never satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. She comes close though. Uh, however, <laughs> God is the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. And so we are to point to God. Number six. The gospel is to make us more sexual, not less. The gospel is to make us more sexual, not less. Now, when I say that, I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the gospel is to make us more sexually active with whomever we want. <laughs> Some people are online going, this is a good church. I appreciate this church, isn't it? <laughs> But again, the gospel heightens. You were made for communion with God. And you were made for communion with others. And we are called to pay attention to our bodies. Pay attention to our cravings. Pay attention to our passions. Pay attention to our longings. One of the reasons why we're so big at New Life on getting people in community, connecting in smaller groups, because we were made to know others. You can't come to a big church like ours and in this way be truly known. And so we want to create other environments in which you can know someone and grow in the depth of love in that kind of way. But the gospel at its core is to make us more sexual, not less. The gospel means our Lord Jesus Christ, God became human. We often think that our body is somehow less than our soul. That our body is, is just something that's temporal and, and we, we, every passion and any, any desire that comes from our bodies, all of it needs to be rejected. And that's bad teaching. When God saved us in Jesus Christ, he did not just save our souls. He came to save our bodies as well. How do I know? Well, at the end of the story in the Bible, the end of the story is not just us ascending and, and playing on a, on, on a cloud with a harp and some kind of a ghost-like experience. The Bible promises that at the end of history, we will be resurrected, bodily resurrected. Did Christ come to save our soul or our body? The answer is yes. He came to save all of us. And so right now, we are called to discern what it means to cultivate this sexuality, this deep longing, this deep connection, which means I'm listening to my body as well. And that's what the gospel calls us to do. Lastly, the gospel offers good news to those carrying shame. The gospel offers good news to those carrying shame. Some of you watching online, some of you in this room here, you carry so much shame. Shame because of things you've done. Shame because of struggles you've had. Shame because of what has been done to you. And you carry it. It's your everyday reality. When you look at your own body, shame. There's so much shame that all of us to some degree carry. And yet the beauty of Christianity is that God has taken on shame on his body so that we don't have to carry it in ours. This is the good news of the cross, that something has happened in Jesus Christ, that he takes on our sin, he takes on our shame so that we don't have to live in shame, but that we can live with varying degrees of freedom because of what's possible in his name. And yet we have to call it for what it is. 
So many of us are so shaped by shame. I think about an image that my father-in-law painted a few years ago that depicts the shame in the garden. And I thought this really captures it profoundly. Some of you, you have, your body has literally been like this. When you think about all the struggles and all the things that's happened to you, all the things that you've done, curling up in a ball, avoiding connection with God and connection with others. And this is Adam and Eve in the garden, a picture of our own lives. What I love about this image and in a conversation I had with my father-in-law a couple of years ago is that he mentioned that he placed lights in the back here as a picture of God moving towards us, that God is always moving towards us with light. God is always moving towards us with love. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? This is what God asks you today. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I long for you. Why are you hiding? And in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we see how that light became flesh and how God reverses the curse in the garden. For in the garden, Adam and Eve hide behind a tree, naked, covered in shame. But in Jesus Christ, look how the story flips. He hangs on a tree, naked, and conquers shame. Adam and Eve hide, Jesus hangs. Adam and Eve are naked, Jesus is naked. Adam and Eve are covered in it, Jesus conquers it. And we gather on Sunday to worship, to proclaim this good news that in Christ Jesus, we have been forgiven. That in Christ Jesus, we are made whole. That in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. For some of you, this has been your existence when you think about your body, when you think about what you've done. And yet God is crying and calling out to you, where are you? I long to be in relationship with you and have my relationship so inform the rest of your relationships. And that's the beauty of saying yes to Jesus Christ. No longer do I have to live in shame. No longer do I have to live in sin. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray together. Where is there shame? in your body, in your mind, in your heart, where have you been carrying it? This impulse that makes you turn around from others and internalize this message that says, I'm so bad. The beauty of the gospel is that God has taken on our shame that his kindness comes to us and leads us to repentance. And yet some of you have been so stuck for years, for decades. And what an opportunity the Holy Spirit wants to give us to set us free. Where are you stuck? Maybe you've been living the starvation diet. Maybe you've been living the fast food diet. Wherever you're at today, Jesus wants to meet you and heal you and set you free. Lord, uh, thank you for Holy Scripture. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of the church. And Lord, we ask that the Spirit would begin to do deep work in our souls.
Lord, I confess how countercultural this message is, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And yet you've called us to be different than the world. And so lead us, Holy Spirit, individually and as a community. We sing to you now words of praise and thanksgiving, celebrating your goodness towards us. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, let's all stand. Let's sing together. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire and darkest night. You are close like no other. I know you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. And all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every the goodness of God. See, all my life, and all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness God, I will sing of the goodness of God, I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen. Amen. Let's have our prayer team come to my left. It's a wonderful way to end a message on sexuality and shame and sin, goodness of God. It's often the case that people go to church and they hear messages on these topics and they walk away just burdened, like, I'm never going to measure up. Here's the good news. None of us do. <laughs> but we measure up in Christ Jesus. Righteousness. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Listen, uh, some of you came to church today and your marriage is struggling. Make no doubt about it. Some of you are trying to figure out how to have a, a life that's marked by communion and love and intimacy and vulnerability. And as a community, we're here to serve you. Marriage is hard work, hard, hard work. And we need a community around us to help us. And so uh, our pastors are here to serve you. Our marriage ministry is here to serve you. Uh, and so the invitation is that you would reach out to us. For those of you who are single, to be single is hard, hard, hard. Especially in a world that tends to, especially in the church, that tends to view singleness as a stigma, as a, a stopping point until you get married. So you're seen as a second-class citizen. And yet, in your singleness, we're here to serve you and love you and help to get you connected in community with one another. And so whether you're single or married, uh, we're here to serve you. Some of you, you come to our church, you're watching online, you're caught up in addictions. You're addicted. And one of the ways that I've tried to talk about addictions is addictions is often our way of trying to soothe ourselves. It's, it's our coping mechanism. It's you've been experiencing so much pain and you're trying to numb your pain. And it's come out through all kinds of addictions. And the hope is that as a community, we're here not to just go, just stop that, just do something else. No, we wanna help you identify what are you covering up? What are you masking? What are you soothing? 
And let us lead you into the freedom that comes in the name of Jesus. And so wherever you find yourself, this is an ongoing journey that we've been a part of for many, many years as a congregation. And we're just going to continue to go deeper into it because all of us are sexually broken and all of us need the healing touch of Jesus Christ. And so whether you come for prayer, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. Let uh, our team just minister to you, pray for you, whatever needs you have, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, At the end of our service, uh, I'll be downstairs in... um, the porch area, the lobby area, I'd love to meet you. Uh, if you're watching online, if you're new here and you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, um, I want to invite you to say yes to him. At the end of our service, someone said to me, I, I, can I ask you, what do you mean by saying yes to Jesus? And I thought, what a wonderful question. And really, my response to him down in the lobby today was, it's two things. It's you surrendering your life and saying, I'm tired of being my own God, my own King, my own Lord. I want to surrender my life to Jesus, and I want to follow Him. And so if you're sensing that right now, surrender. I want to tell you, you've surrendered to something already, whether you know it or not. And it's not working for you. It's not satisfying your soul. Surrender to Jesus. He loves you with an everlasting love. And so if you're wondering, what does it mean to say yes to Jesus, to make a decision? Surrender. Give your life to him. And if you've never made that kind of prayer, if you've never been baptized as an expression of saying yes to Jesus, we want to serve you and help you do that. Surrender and follow. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. Our sermon discussion time will uh, continue in a couple of weeks for those of you watching online. Uh, but thank you for worshiping with us wherever you're joining us from. Uh, wherever you're at, watching online as well, open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. It's so good to worship with you all. What a gift to hear your voices, um, to see your eyebrows moving when I'm preaching, you know. What a gift. Let me bless you. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit. May you walk out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that you are loved with an everlasting love in Jesus Christ. And may your life be marked by sexual wholeness. And may you be a gift to the world around you. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the holy name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.